0: But what I thought Cottrell would probably say is, well, Dad, if you didn't have a group to read that with, you probably would have given up on it. And, and that's probably true. Uh, let us pray. Gracious God, we have come to be with you. So please take the words of my mouth, all the meditations, thoughts of our hearts, and even the reading of your holy scriptures and transform them into your living word that we might connect with you and become deeper connected with one another and with our true selves, whom you created and have sent into ministry. Amen. What I'd like to do for the reading of the scriptures is just set in a little bit of context uh, both of the passages. So the first passage um, is sort of like Soren Kierkegaard. The prophet Isaiah is actually putting together a love poem. Only the love poem goes from St. Valentine's Day to the St. Valentine's Day massacre. It does a flip in the middle of it. And he does this at the height of the golden era of Judah. When Judah was at its very most secure, rich, and impressive status in the ancient Near East. Uh, The New Testament passage that will follow comes from the book of Hebrews, which is one of the very last books of the New Testament to be written. And um, as you know, we've talked about this before, most of the first generation Christians believed that the world actually was going to end in their lifetime. And we can talk about why they believed that was the case, but they believe that. And so, for example, when the Apostle Paul gives the suggestion that if you're not married, don't marry, it wasn't that he was against marriage, it was because he thought, you know, it's not gonna last very long. By the time we get to the book of Hebrews, we're now in the second generation of Christians. And it's dawning on that generation of Christians that rather being sort of rescued from the chaos of the world, God intends them to live in it. And that's the context of the book of Hebrews. So with that in mind, let's start with Isaiah, the love poem, and then go to the book of Hebrews. Isaiah five, one through seven, the Old Testament reading. Let me sing for my beloved, My love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it. He expected it to yield sweet grapes but it yielded wild grapes. So now, inhabitants of Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there for me to do for my vineyard that I have not done it? When I expected it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And I'll tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and it shall be overgrown with briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds not to rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the people of Judah are his pleasant planting. He expected justice, but he saw bloodshed, righteousness, but all he heard was the cry, And now the New Testament reading. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as if it were dry land. But when the Egyptians attempted to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had received the spies in peace. And what more should I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched raging fire, escaped the edge of the sword, won strength out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, refusing to accept release in order to obtain a better resurrection. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned to death. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, persecuted, tormented of whom the world is not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and caves and in holes in the ground. Yet all of these, though they were commended for their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better so that they would not, apart from us, be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings to us so closely. And let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus as the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. May the Lord bless this reading of his holy word. So towards the end of last week's sermon, I encouraged us to to receive, to receive from God, to receive from God so that we could be aligned with God knowing full well that as we left church, all hell could break loose and probably would. I think I was right. How did you do this week? You know, of course there is the usual unprecedented political outrage on both sides of the aisle and now becoming more common, the amped-up violence. But what hit me hardest was a new Pew Research Center survey that studied partisanship, a huge study, over 6,000 respondents, most recently between June 27th and July 4th. And the study found that the proportion of people in each party with a very unfavorable view of the other party has tripled in the last 28 years. Now in some ways, I think we sort of sense that that's going on. But 28 years ago when And it's always been skewed that the right is a little bit more, at least when they're asked in a survey, distrusting of the left, but they're pretty close, so 21% to 17% 28 years ago. You know, in marital counseling, if you have two spouses and they're like, I really love this other person, but I have a problem trusting them about 17 to 21% of the time. You can work with that. There's hope there. But when you have a couple, and one is saying, I distrust this person 74% of the time, and the other person says, I distrust this person 62% of the time, there's not much you can do. I will make a prediction where that relationship is headed. And it's a sinking, terrible feeling. And I was very sad when I saw that this week. And the way in which the coming days, months, years play out with the most recent, outrageous, you know, revelations, the deeper issue is, for me, do we have Irreconcilable differences. Are we at that place that Abraham Lincoln talked about where we will not be able to stand? I didn't anticipate that last week when I encouraged us to receive. And I spent a lot of time in prayer just trying to hang on this week when I learned that. But you know, for me, the hardest thing this week, it may not have been for you, but the hardest thing for me actually was reported uh, in this morning's paper, but it's been out there. It's been out there in other news sources, and that is it really looks like polio is back. Now, the reason why this is so hard for me personally is um, my grandfather used to talk with me about the polio vaccine and in his mind it was the greatest gift that god had ever given since salvation in jesus christ and he would talk about his friends right when he was going to school that would just start you know it would just happen and they would get polio and their lives forever would be changed and the there was nothing you could do. And his children were born under the scare of the iron lung of polio. They moved from Indiana to California because of a scare with my aunt. And then the polio vaccine was invented, distributed. I still remember getting it. Some of you remember, you know, that that thing we, We drank, remember, and being in line in school to do that, and now my daughters have a different type of vaccine. They didn't have to drink anything. But it looks like because of the COVID-19 pandemic, both making it harder for children to be vaccinated, but also all of the anti-vax stuff, that now polio's back and I hope that it's not really back but it looks like it is. I don't know what my grandfather, I think it would make my grandfather so absolutely sad. And it reminds me frankly of our Old Testament passage where I mean, this is how I hear this in our context. Uh, You may hear it differently, but say with the polio vaccine, God saying, what more could I have done? What more could I have done? I personally feel that way about democracy and education. I think our form of government is a gift from God when it works the way it's supposed to, I have been feeling like God is saying to us, what more could I have done? Right? Because behind our understanding of government, no matter where we find ourselves on the political spectrum, And at least my understanding is that we need the political spectrum for democracy to work. We need all sorts of different views, otherwise it doesn't work. But it's for the empowerment and and rising people up. It's, It's for justice, it's for righteousness. Is that what we're doing now? Or are we competing for power? Are the grapes sweet or are they wild? So I hear these words. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the people of Judah are his pleasant planting. He expected justice, but he saw bloodshed, righteousness, and all he heard was a cry. Barbara Brown Taylor, in her book, An Altar in the World, A Geography of Faith, talks about the importance of a message like Isaiah's. You'll have to decide whether or not you think there's the application in our day and time that I'm lifting up. I could be wrong. But as far as Isaiah in the eighth century, I think that what Isaiah was trying to do before it was too late was to, to knock the leaders down. She says, to lie flat on the ground with the breath knocked out of you is to finally find a solid resting place. This is as low as you can go. You told yourself you would die if it ever came to this, but here you are. You cannot help yourself, and yet you live. What my historian self and my pastoral self tells me is that we may be at the place where things have to get a lot worse before they get better. And that drives me to a lot of prayer. Things had to get worse in 8th century Judah. Isaiah was, I mean, he is the most able communicator, I mean, some would argue maybe Jesus is, but I mean, Isaiah Isaiah was such a gift to the people of Israel. And yet, in the end, King Ahaz ends up sacrificing his own son to curry favor with the Assyrians, choosing power over God, what more could God have done? And so when I read in Hebrews, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely, I don't hear there sort of those sins that we talked about growing up, you know, playing cards and that type of thing. I hear the sin of 8th century Judah. I hear the sin of failing to look at one another as God has created us, redeemed us, and sees us. I hear the sin that somehow thinks that by dividing us, there's some type of advantage. Because none of that's of God. It's not even remotely close to God. And at the same time, the author of Hebrews says, let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us. Feels like endurance. Feels hard. Feels harder than reading the soaring Kierkegaard book, which, John, I'll tell you, at least for me, it was hard. It was great! Hard, yeah, yeah. Okay, so here I am this summer on the very, very first day of sort of my time away I drove like crazy down to Etna, California. Have any of you ever been to Etna, California? Of course you haven't. Because like no one goes to Etna, California. But Etna, California is in the Scott Valley. It's just south of the metropolis of Yreka, which I call the Appalachia of California, right? So it's this little town I checked Aetna is 680 people, but I think they count visitors, right? But a friend of mine had just done this amazing cycling adventure there where you climb up Mount Aetna and then you go into the Cascade backcountry for 100 miles and then you come back out. And I, I just, this just captured my imagination. I was all prepared. And meanwhile, my friend is telling me, don't do it alone. So I do the first climb and I see this big sign at the top that said, unless you have a plan to get out, go back. And I thought, you know, this is the first day of vacation. So I went down the hill and then I was around the Scott Valley and I just, I did a smaller ride that day. Well, I'm on the smaller ride Unprepared, I go by what I think, and remember I grew up in Chicago so I don't know, but I think was a free-range chicken farm. Because this is what I saw. I saw what looked like about, oh, 40 acres and one small chicken coop right out in the middle of the 40 acres. Now this is why I'm basing it on Um, I think this is free range. Not just only the space, but I've been to like an Illinois-style chicken coop, which is sort of like the Sears building on its side full of thousands of chickens. That all they do is they eat, they don't move very much, they lay eggs, and when they don't lay any more eggs, they become Campbell's chicken soup. It's very efficient. No predators get into these steel structures. We won't talk about what they smell like, very efficient. And as I look at this sort of free-range chicken coop out in the middle of this acreage, where I've just come down off of the hill being very aware of, well, it's not just weather that you're dealing with and the fact you don't know where you're going to get water, but there are predators. I was struck by the vulnerability the vulnerability of that free-range chicken coop. I did some research on it later, and yes, I mean, people who have free-range chickens are losing their chickens all the time, to hawks and snakes and other things that eat chickens, and it's a real problem. And I remembered, all I saw was a coop. I didn't see any chickens. It may have been a failed free-range chicken project. That's where the title of the sermon comes from, Free Range Transcendence. And I would just like for you to think about this image. I wanna offer to us the possibility that our solution going forward as individuals and as a people um, is gonna come from God, who is transcendent and I think we need to be very, very careful thinking it's gonna come from any other solution or any other voice. We need each other to figure that out. We need each other from every perspective to figure that out. But I think it's gonna come from God and yet at the same time, I don't think we're like the Illinois chicken farm where our job is just to somehow produce, produce, what is it? The three peeps, uh, peas, produce, or something else and poop, I forget what it is, but they do three Ps. But instead, it seems like we're meant to be out there in this vulnerable situation where we're really not quite sure what's going to happen next given the life that we've lived so far, but that makes it all the more important to connect with God who is transcendent. And one of the reasons why I think this is that, gosh, if there's anyone that I know of who I think was connected with God, it was Thomas Merton. And this is what Thomas Merton said. This is how he prayed. My Lord God, I have no idea where I'm going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end nor do I really know myself. But the fact that I think I am following your will does not, and the fact that I think that I'm following your will does not mean that I'm actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. Could it be that the desire to please God and no one else. The desire to please God could be our compass in this very confusing time. He goes on, I hope I have that desire in all that I am doing. I hope that I'll never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this and if you will lead me on the right road, though I may not know anything about it, I will follow. Therefore, I will trust you always, even though it may seem that I am lost, even in the shadow of death. And yet, I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. I think that's what the author of Hebrews is saying about living in faith. I think that's actually what Isaiah was saying. And I think, at least for me, no matter what we hear this week, that's going to be my compass. Always be joyful. Keep on praying. No matter what happens, always be thankful. For this is God's will for all of us who belong to Jesus Christ. Amen.
1: children of-
0: so much, Carolyn. I knew that was coming, so I could go a little harder before you did it. Thank you. Let us pray. Holy God, the world pressures us to divide ourselves more and more into safe pockets of discourse that are hardly safe nor true in your all-seeing eyes. We erect bulwarks against our perceived enemies, rather than listening to the voices of your children who hope upon your praise. We sometimes think if only we had more friends who agree with our views of the world, not necessarily your view, but our views, we imagine we could finally relax. Remind us, O Lord, once again, that we are all your children. You created all of us in your image and gifted us for community life. You have called all of us and claimed all of us as your own. You give our lives meaning, and you instill us with value as your people. Remind us, O Lord, that this is the good news. So we pray for those who do not know this good news of their own value in your eyes. We pray for those who feel like they are running on a hamster wheel every day, trying to get ahead and making no progress. We pray for those who are trying to prove themselves and constantly feel like they are falling short. We pray for those who are burdened by a false sense of independence or constantly consumed by outrage, unable to ask for community or to admit frailty or to live with nuance. We pray for those who have been victimized by selfishness, gaslighting, and digital isolation. For all these people, your people, we ask for the power of your good news to bring new life. O Lord, you have knit us together into community. You have fashioned us as your vineyard. In Jesus Christ, we are renewed. And as we follow Jesus Christ, divisions among us are overcome. Teach us, O Lord, your ways of interdependence. Grant us generosity to share our resources with one another, to listen to one another, to give each other time. Open us to receive the wisdom and gifts of our siblings in Christ. Clothe us with new life and enable us to live faithfully in this particular time and place. And so, this morning, we pray not for our kingdom, but for yours